0: Hi guys, good morning, it's uh, good to see you all. I see that uh, you came for the air conditioning, right? <laughs> it, is, <laughs> it is a little balmy out there, so um, we're praising God that uh, we have lovely weather. And um, I just want to let you know that if you're thinking, oh my gosh, next week there's that barbecue picnic thing, it's going to be a billion degrees you know what um we just had an elders meeting and we got this approved we're going to put in air conditioning outdoors so yeah so we may be taking a separate offering for that but it's it's possible it might not be installed by next week but come anyways um we'll see how that goes it was it was February the 12th Saturday morning and And like a lot of uh, busy moms, all she wanted to do was sleep in a little bit on Saturday. She had a seven-year-old son, only child. He was old enough. He was responsible enough. He could take care of himself a little bit. And so she told him, you know what? It's okay if you get up on Saturday morning. You can watch the Saturday morning cartoons in your PJs. It's going to be okay. Get yourself some Cheerios and just let mommy sleep. If you need me, you can come and get me. But like any mom, once she knew that her son was up, it was really hard for her to sleep. She kind of slept with one eye open and one ear open, just wondering if he was going to be okay. And and uh, she was listening for the sound of the Cheerios going into the bowl. She was listening for the sound of the Saturday morning cartoons, and she didn't hear those sounds. Instead, she started hearing other sounds. She heard uh, sounds of boxes being moved and something being poured out and lots of crinkling paper and eventually she said uh, I got to figure this out so she got up and she went out and and there in the kitchen she found her seven-year-old son and he had turned the kitchen into a craft room he had gone and gotten all of her craft supplies he had glue and he had paper and he had scissors and he had markers and the whole nine yards and he was he was cutting something as she walked in and she stood and watched him for a minute and finally she said "Hun, what are you doing and he said Today's February the 12th. On Monday, it's going to be Valentine's Day. I'm making a valentine for everyone in my class. And her heart sunk. Because immediately she flashed back to the previous February when he was in the first grade. She remembered as he went off with his box of valentines to give to his friends and his bag to bring back the valentines he would get. And she remembered how he came back with not a single valentine. And as a, as a mom, her heart was crushed. And she knew her son, and she knew he was a wonderful kid, and she knew that he was going to grow up to be a wonderful man. But at this stage in his life, he was just uh, socially awkward, and he wasn't quite fitting in. He was younger than the other kids in his grade, and they made fun of him. And she was just afraid of what this Valentine's Day might be like for him. And so she prayed for him. And she said, "Hun, how about if you just make one or two for maybe best friends. And he said, oh no, mom, I want to make one for everybody. He had a list of his classmates. And one by one, he made a handmade Valentine for every one of those kids. And it was time to go to school on Monday morning. And he went off and he had his his, uh, bag that he had made for himself, a big bag. He made it out of papers and stapled the sides. And that was for bringing home the Valentines. But then he had this box that was for giving out the Valentines. And She put him on the bus and waved goodbye and she prayed for him because she just knew what this day was going to hold. And when he came back and the bus pulled up to the trail at the end of their yard, she saw him get off the bus and his bag, the big bag that he had made was rolled up and stuffed under his arm. And he was just saying, not a single one, not a single one. Not a single one as he walked toward his mom. And she knew he was about to lose and she got down on one knee so she could look in his eye and she lifted up his chin to see the tears that were undoubtedly there. She saw this beaming smile and he said, not a single one of my classmates went without a valentine today. There's a kind of love that is not about me, but about you. There's a a kind of love that doesn't focus on self, but focuses on others. There's a kind of love that is willing to make a sacrifice. There's a kind of love that actually feels joy knowing that someone else got blessed even when I didn't get blessed. And we don't see it very often. In fact, we never see it perfectly except when we look in the pages of Scripture and we see God's love and we understand. And we talked about this last week because we've been in the, in the uh, first letter of John, 1 John, and we've been in 1 John all summer during this Summer of Love series, and this theme of love keeps coming up, and it's not done. We're going to turn the page next week to chapter 4, and you're going to find that chapter 4 is about, guess what? Love. And he's just going to keep hitting this theme of love again and again from every angle. It's almost as if John is of the opinion that love is is an essential characteristic of the Christian life. And and yet, as I said last week, he uses this Greek verb agapeo, which is this this unconditional love, this sacrificial love, this other-centered love. And he calls us to love that way. And he doesn't just call us to love that way, but he basically says, if you're a Christian, you will love this way. And if you don't love, you're not a Christian. Now, that's a pretty harsh statement, especially in our culture, in our day and age, when the idea is, well, I'm an American, I'm not a Jew, and I'm not a Muslim, and I'm not a Buddhist, I guess I'm a Christian. And John says, no, folks, we we need to be a little more careful. We need to think carefully about whether or not Jesus is really taking up residence in our lives. Because when Jesus, the one who is love, lives in me, he loves through me. And if love is not characteristic in my life, I got a problem in my heart. So John's trying to describe for us the difference between a person who has truly been born again, a person whose heart is regenerate, and a person who is unregenerate. And, and he says it's not, us, it's not the things we usually look for, church membership and uh, labels and things of that nature. No, it has more to do with these issues of love and obedience and trust. And he breaks it down for us throughout 1 John. But essentially he says this, love is the evidence of a transformed heart. Don't tell me about your Jesus and then not love me. Love is the evidence of a transformed heart, and every heart needs to be transformed because we are all born with a heart condition. Amen? It's true. You don't have to live in this world for very long to know that. You don't have to live with yourself very long to know that, and you certainly don't have to live with others very long to know that. People have a heart condition, and so what I want to do today as we... As we sort of circle around this theme of love in 1 John, I want us to look at it from a slightly different angle as John introduces this concept, and we'll get to 1 John in a minute, but but I want us to think about some bad news before we get to the good news. And I, I think this is the part that too often gets skipped when we hear preachers talk about love. And when we hear preachers talk about God, too often we skip the bad news and we go straight to the good news about Jesus' grace and his love and his salvation and how much he wants to give us. And we skip the bad news. But as you go through the scripture, the scripture doesn't skip the bad news about the human heart. And so I want us to just to just sort of fly above the scripture and land, and then fly over here and land, and fly over here and land, and just look at some pictures of the human heart as it's given to us in the Bible. And, and you don't have to turn there, but let me just quote to you from Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3. Here's what Solomon says. The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. And if he was writing today, he would say, you know, people be crazy. (laughs) You know, that, that, that insanity and evil is what describes the condition of the human heart. Now, you might say, well, I've read Ecclesiastes, and that is a dark book guy's just got a dark outlook, and you know, it's Solomon, he's kind of the Eeyore of the Old Testament, and everything's a little bit down with him, and he's kind of being poetic here, and I don't know if it's really fair to say that the human heart is full of evil and insanity, so let's, let's don't trust that. Let's go to Matthew chapter 15, and let's see what Jesus says right here in our love-filled New Testament. Matthew chapter 15 And I want you to pick it up in verse 17. So now we've heard from Eeyore in the Old Testament, let's hear from Jesus, the one who is full of light, the one who is full of love, the one who is full of compassion and grace and is always lifting people up. Listen to what he has to say about the condition of the human heart. We're going to pick it up in Matthew 15, verse 17. He's been, he's been watching as the Pharisees are freaking out because some people ate without going through a ceremonial hand washing process. And they're all concerned that if you eat with dirty hands, you become defiled. And here's what Jesus has to say about that. We're going to pick it up in verse 17. Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. Listen to this. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. That's Jesus. He says, you you pick an evil thing, murder, adultery, slander, you go right down the list of evil things. He goes, you want to know where that stuff comes from? It comes right out of the human heart. We're not defiled by what we put into our bodies. We're defiled by what comes out of our mouths. It's a, it's a picture of what's going on inside of us. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth now speaks. So Jesus is saying, we have a heart problem. And if you go, and we're not going to turn to each of these passages, but you can make a note in your notes if you want to. As you go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7, Jesus drives this point home again and again. He makes the point where he says, listen, I know you think that adultery is the problem, but I'm telling you, adultery is not the problem, it's the symptom. The problem is a heart that is filled with lust. He says, I know that you've been taught that murder is the problem, but I'm telling you, murder is a symptom of a hate-filled heart the problem, says Jesus, is the heart. And then I, I really think Jeremiah says it really succinctly. Uh, let me just give it to you. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Well-known verse. You can write it in your notes. Jeremiah seventeen nine: The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? <laughs> the heart in fact, the King James says, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can even know their own heart? That's how he's describing the general description of human beings. Who wear are on the inside. He's saying, guys, it's not just about how you look on the outside. Yeah, you can dress up, do your hair, put on some makeup and be presentable. But on the inside, what do you look like? And what he's saying is the general condition of people is we don't look so good on the inside because God doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks upon the heart. And apparently, in general, he doesn't like what he sees. Let's look at it again in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 45. Jesus takes the description further. Here's what he says. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart." So he's saying, listen, if you want to evaluate yourself and, and we all want to know, am I good or bad? Am I better than so-and-so? Where do I fit on the good-bad scale? I talk to so many people who want to say, you know what, um, I'm not perfect, but I think my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds and I'm a pretty good guy and you know my heart's in the right place, etc., etc., etc. Jesus says your heart's not in the right place. He says that the good man... Out of the good treasure of his heart does good works. In other words, when your heart gets changed, your behavior changes. And if your heart is not changed, you will continue to bring out of that broken, if you will, heart, (coughs) broken works. And you can look at your own life and see whether you've been transformed. And, and guys, this is no wonder that the fight against crime in our nation continues to fail. It doesn't seem to matter how many laws we make, how many police we hire, how many newfangled security systems we put in, or how many prisons we build. We can fill all the prisons because people keep breaking the law. It doesn't matter how many classes we give them on how to rehabilitate yourself and do better. All the statistics show that if a person doesn't undergo a foundational transformation in their heart, they're going to keep bringing forth the bad works that got them in trouble in the first place. And it would be great if we could just sit here as as Christians, as many of us are Christians here today, and we could sit here today and go, well, man, I'm so glad I'm out of that. I'm so glad this doesn't affect Christians. But in fact, the truth is that even for Christians who have been born again and have a new heart, we still struggle against the flesh. That's just one of the reasons why I always get on my soapbox and go, you guys, We cannot be known as judgmental when we have the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and still struggle with sin. How in the world can we wag our fingers at people who don't have the Holy Spirit and don't have the Word of God and struggle against sin? So so it's still a human issue, even for believers and, and I think maybe the passage that speaks to this the most loudly is in the book of Romans. So let me take you to Romans 7. I know some of you are saying, I thought this was a 1 John study. Trust me, we'll get there. Romans chapter 7, verse 14. Now, this is written by the great apostle Paul. Most people would put him in the hall of fame of godly people, one of the godliest people who ever lived, one of the heroes of our faith. Listen to what Paul says about himself now. He's talking about himself In Romans chapter 7, verse 14. For we know that the law of God is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. Anybody recognize that? Is that familiar to anybody? The very thing that I hate, I find myself doing. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Did you follow that? It's kind of Dr. Seuss-like. Do you follow that? But if I am doing the very thing that I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. So he's saying, I have been transformed. I am a Christian. I am a new person in Christ, and I want to do good. See, one of the the big differences between people who who have been uh, born again and those who have not, is the scripture tells us that among those who have not been born again, there is no one who does good. They don't even want to do good. They don't even seek to do good. Now, does that mean that there are no good deeds done among unbelievers? No, that's not what it means. It means that, that everything we do is tainted by our selfishness. Nothing that we do stands alone and is holy, but he says, I at least want to do good, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Pick it up, verse 20. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want to do, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God and the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? I mean, it's just like he's crying out so frustrated because apparently he keeps stepping in the same holes and he's saying to himself, according to what I understand of the gospel, I should be living a different life than I'm living, but I want to, but I keep struggling. Now, this is a guy who's pretty spiritually mature, And still struggling. Now, he says he calls himself a wretched man. Elsewhere, he calls himself the chief of all sinners. And he cries out, Who will set me free from the body of this death? And then the news gets better. Verse 25 Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, verse chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That was the time where you stand up roaringly applauding God and you scream amen, right? You missed it. Let me read it to you again. <laughs> Therefore, there, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul is making this argument. If you are a Christian, you've been given a new heart, but even that new heart is not yet perfect. You're still gonna be dealing with the flesh. And he says, but those of us who are no longer under condemnation have been set free from the law of sin and death. We no longer walk according to the flesh, but we walk according to the spirit. Two, three weeks ago, Pastor Byron was up here and he came across that passage where it it says in 1 John that no Christian sins. And and I remember very well what he said because I had my pen ready and I was ready to hear how he explained that. And what he said is, I don't understand that. Pastor Doug's going to have to explain it. (laughs) And that's why he's not here today. (laughs) I mean, I could have done that. That's why I gave him that passage. But here's the deal, guys. All throughout 1 John, he's making this argument that a real Christian, while he is not perfect, he is marked by godliness. He is marked by the love of God. He is marked by the love of people. He walks with God. Does he sometimes stumble? Yes, but he walks with God. And so Paul is saying, although I still stumble, even as an apostle... I walk with God because of what he's done for me, not because of what I do, but because of what he's done for me. And and he, and he makes it very clear that when he sets us up to walk by the spirit, walking by the spirit means walking in love. Galatians chapter 5 verse 22, the fruit of the spirit is love. So as we allow the Spirit to indwell us and to control us, and as we submit and are filled with the Spirit, we walk according to love. So he says, yes, we have a heart problem, but God has given us a new heart, and he makes it possible for us, much as we are surrendered to God, to actually live according to love. And John's been talking about love that shows itself through sacrificially meeting the needs of others, and now... Then I'm finished with the introduction. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. I just want to remind you what we looked at last week, verses 17 and 18. For whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. So he's talking to us about living out our transformed lives through love. But now he wants to talk to us about our hearts. So let's continue. Pick it up in verse 19. He says, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Now, that's a a confusing wording there. And to be honest, it reads more clearly in Greek than it does in English. But I do not have time to give class to everybody, so you're just going to have to trust me on this for a second, okay? There's a word here, and, and depends on your translation. You may have it this way, but in, uh, in verse uh, 20, in whatever our heart condemns us, no, in verse 19, we will know this, we will know by this that we are of the truth, and will assure our heart before him. That word assure uh, is, is, I think, better translated as persuade or convince and, and maybe some of your Bibles have it that way. The New American Standard has it as a sure with a footnote. But, but, but really the, the thrust of the word is that, is that convincing of our heart. That we have to actually go to battle with our own heart sometimes. And we have to persuade our heart to believe God. We have to persuade our heart to trust God. There, there are times when we need to lead our hearts or let God lead our hearts rather than letting our hearts lead us. Because what we've just seen in the scripture is that unregenerate people have no business letting their heart lead them. It's just gonna lead them off a cliff. And even regenerate people, believers, still have a damaged hearts that are not yet fully mature and cannot be fully trusted. And so we have to sometimes persuade our hearts. We have to go to battle against the flesh. We have to stand against this tendency that we're all born with to make everything about us and to, and to live in a way that is all about me and what I get rather than about God and His glory. Now, that is quite a departure from the standard uh, wisdom of our culture today. Like, you know, basically, the culture basically teaches that what we really need to do is follow our hearts. You know, just follow your heart. Man, I wish I had a dollar for everything I've seen in social media that says in one way or another, hey, everybody, just follow your heart and you'll be fine. Not sure what you need to do? Just follow your heart. Follow your passions. Follow the things that that, um, draw you guys, there is no more advice that is more antithetical to scripture than the idea that we should follow our hearts. We're not called to follow our hearts. Our hearts let us into this mess. We're called to follow God, right? And and he's the one who transforms our hearts. So um, it doesn't come naturally for anybody to sacrifice for others. Our hearts don't tell us to do that. But God tells us to do that. You say, no, listen, you know, my, I'll do anything for my grandkids. Yeah, because they're your grandkids. Do you see? It, there, is a, there is a selfishness that is inherent within us that we are battling against as believers because we're still dealing with the flesh. And I'll tell you something else that doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come naturally for us to trust God more than we trust our hearts. I mean, yes, the Bible says your heart is dis, uh, desperately wicked, and yes, we've been fooled before by our hearts, and we're all, but we're all still tempted. We're still tempted to, to live primarily subjectively. We're, we're tempted to live according to our feelings, according to our urges, according to our heart's desires. In other words, we like to do what seems good to us rather than what God has told us to do in His Word. But guys, just evaluate that system of thinking. How much harm has been done by people who trusted in their own hearts to guide them? You you guys will remember. It was, I don't know, maybe 10 to 15 years ago. um, It was all over the news. Andrea Yates, young mother, five children. And she, one by one, systematically drowned all five of her children in her bathtub one day. And when asked to explain it, she said that she had always believed that she was no good. And therefore, she passed on evil to her kids, and they could never get to heaven anyway. And her heart said to do away with them. So she followed her heart. You say, well, that's an extreme example. yeah, it is. But how many less extreme examples could we come up with? Countless millions of people have been led astray by false religions that are based upon the idea of following your heart. In fact, you know, if, uh, if you're home next Saturday afternoon and a knock comes at your door and you look through the people and there are two nice young men in white shirts and skinny ties and they're there to visit you, My suggestion is that you don't welcome the men. But let's say that you do, and you start listening to them. You know what you're going to find out? They're going to explain to you how there's more to meet your needs than what the Lord offers us in his word. And that there's this new book called the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. And they're going to tell you, if you're not sure whether this is from God, here's what you do: We're going to give you a free copy of this book, and we want you to just read it. Read as much of it as you can, and we're going to come back. and And when you read it, pray that God will confirm the truth of this book by giving you what they call a burning in the bosom. That that your heart will be warmed. As you meet with these guys every week, and they, they care for you, and they pray for you, and they try to help meet your needs, and they're these wonderful young men, and they're telling you about this book and explaining away your confusion, and they're telling you, just keep reading and see if you get a burning in the bosom, a warmth in your heart, and when you get that warmth, that's God telling you that this is the truth, and you should follow it. Guys, I don't know about you, but when I have a burning in the bosom, I assume it's pizza. <laughs> That's just a safe assumption for me. And all kidding aside, the, the, the doctrine of Mormonism is so far from biblical Christianity. It couldn't be further away. And you say, no, but don't they, they worship the same God? It says right in their sign, Church of Jesus Christ. The Jesus Christ of the Mormons is not the Jesus Christ of the Bible. Okay? But you could be led astray as millions have. By feeling a warmth in your heart when you read their false doctrine. How many people have given in to infatuation and ended in a mess of a relationship that even their own judgment told them they should stay out of, but their heart just wouldn't let them stay out of? Listen, there is a subjective side to following Jesus, but it always has to be governed by the truth of Scripture. This, this I felt, I heard, I thought, I got a word from God, someone spoke a prophecy over me, so I went and did this, all of that is subjective. Might be right, might be wrong, might be your own ideas, who knows? But the word of God is always right. This has to be the filter through which we, we run our heart. Our heart must be made to subject itself to scripture, we must not subject the scripture to our hearts because our hearts have a problem. So John is saying that it comes down not to our feelings, but to evidence. And the evidence of a genuine Christian life is a pattern of sacrificial love. That doesn't mean that everyone who sacrifices for others is genuinely born again, but it does mean that everyone who is genuinely born again sacrifices for others. It is the mark of Christianity. We live love. That's part of what it is to be a Christian. So that was the bad news. The human heart is in trouble. But there's good news too. And the good news is Jesus transforms bad hearts. And You know, in Ezekiel it says that when we turn to God from our sin, He will take our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. That's what God does. Now, I've, I've already made it clear that even when that happens, there's a process that takes place that we're all in. You may have been walking with Jesus for a long time, and you still find yourself stepping in certain holes, jumping in those holes, willingly, and then smacking yourself in the head saying, why do I do that? None of us is perfect. We're all in process. But guys, we who are in Christ are characterized by walking in the spirit, not walking in the flesh. How do you know what's going on in your heart? Look at how you walk. Look at how you live, John says. And that will give you an indication. Now let's go to verse 21. 1 John chapter 3, verse 21. Beloved. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of the, son of, the of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him and He in Him. We know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Now, I need to just take, it's not a really a departure, but I need to go to verse 22 and spend a moment there because this this doctrine about uh, God giving us what we ask for, I think is probably one of the uh, most commonly misunderstood teachings in Scripture among people who take Scripture seriously. Among Again, Christians who believe the Bible, oftentimes we're confused by these verses, and there are several of them, that talk about whatever we ask of God, He will give to us. Now, let's be fair. What does it say? Verse 22, it says, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Is that true? Yes, because the Bible says it. If the Bible teaches it, it's true. But my experience tells me that if everything that I asked for I got from God, I would have driven here in a Corvette and not a Hyundai. Right? So I mean, I've been walking with the Lord a while, and I've asked for a bunch of stuff that I never got. So, so somehow there's a, there, we're missing something here. So, so, you know, this is a little Bible study tool. Remember this don't take a half a verse like I just did and lift it up out of the Scripture and look at it on its own. Taken out of context, you can make the Bible say anything. we got to get it back in its context of the passage that it's in. In this case, it's the immediate verse and the verses around it and the rest of the context of Scripture that speaks to this subject. And when we do that, we can get a better handle on what this means. Look at verse 22 in its entirety. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. It's about believing and keeping his commandments. And what does that what does it mean to believe? We talk about this all the time, but it's so foundational to our Christian faith that I'm going to just try to illustrate it as many ways as I possibly can. We get the wrong idea what it means to believe. We think that if we intellectually believe in a certain doctrine, that's what it means to believe. That's almost never what the word believe means in the New Testament. It almost always has to do with putting your weight on something. So let's just say that uh, Christy and I are on vacation in Hawaii, and there on the beach is this hammock strung between two trees. And I stand there, and I look at that hammock, and I look at myself in a bathing suit, and I look back, don't laugh, why are you laughing? <laughs> I didn't tell you to get the picture in your head. And I, and, and, and I look at that hammock, and I think, you know, I believe it'll hold me, Right? But the truth is, I'm not sure how much I believe, because if I believed, I'd be laying in it, right? The truth is, I'm not sure the trees will hold me, <laughs> right? And, but if I get in the hammock, you see me laying in that hammock, sipping lemonade, I believe. That's the biblical concept of believing, So it says, when we believe God, when we put all of our weight in God, when we put all of our trust in God, which is marked by love and obedience, in that context, we can trust that God is going to answer our prayers. Why? Because the scripture says, God will give us the desires of our hearts when we seek after him, right? Does that mean that God bends to our desires? No. God bends us so that our desires match his will. And so Jesus spoke about this himself, um, and John is simply summarizing what Jesus said. So I know we're skipping around, but go to the Gospel of John now. Go to John chapter 14, and we're going to see what Jesus himself had to say about this. John 14, and we're going to pick it up in verse 12. Jesus speaking, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes, there's that word, in me, The works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Do you see it? Right there, he's saying basically the same thing. If you ask, I will give it to you. But what is the context? Always when you see these verses, it's always the context of obedience and God's will. For his glory, whatever you ask in my name, that is to say, whatever you ask on my behalf, whatever you ask for my purposes, whatever you ask according to my will, will be given to you. So if what you're hoping is that we can somehow get some genie in the bottle God that if we rub the lamp just right, he'll pop out and grant us our wishes, you're looking in the wrong place because scripture doesn't tell us about a God like that. The God of scripture is actually sovereign and we bow to him. He doesn't bow to us okay? So when it's, it's talking about in His name for the glory of God, there's not a blank check that God gives to us so that we can write our own checks and do what we want to do. Now, who is the one who loves God? Go back to 1 John chapter 3. Let's look again, beginning in verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commands us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given to us. There's an unbreakable connection in true saving faith between loving God, loving people, and and obedience to God. It's a package deal, it all comes together. And if you don't believe in God, how can you love him? And if you love him, how can you not keep his commandments? And if you know him, how can you not trust him? Because if you truly love him, you're going to keep his commandments. And what is the greatest commandment? Love God, love people. Love God, love people. I, we give you a cheat sheet. You should be able to figure this out. Love God, love people. That is the evidence of genuine Trust in God, obedience to God, love of God and people. In that context, God promises to answer our prayers because those prayers are according to His will. So, those who are looking for a formula, look somewhere else. But let's get practical for a second. If we're going to wrap this up, let's make it real in our lives. How do you know? How do you know about your relationship with God and the reality of that relationship? I warn you again for probably the 10th time in this series, this is not for you to judge the heart of the person sitting next to you or the guy who lives next door, the lady in the cubicle next to you at work. This is for us to look at our own hearts. How do we know what's happening in our hearts? I say, ask yourself some basic questions and it'll help you with a roadmap. The first one is this, do I trust God or do I just say the right things? Do I lay in the hammock or do I stand there and say there's a hammock that will hold me? Do I trust him? Do, do I believe what he says? And if I believe what he says, do I do it? that's the second thing. Do I obey him? If I say I trust him, why would I not obey him? Guys, let's remember for a second who God is. Let's just a quick little glimpse. He's holy, he's loving, he is almighty. He is all-knowing. He is all-wise. Why in the world would I not obey a God like that? He holds me in His hands. And I can trust Him. Third thing, do I love others sacrificially? How am I doing in the love area? Am Am I quick to serve others? Even when it costs me something? Am I loving toward people I don't like? That's a hard one, but it's a good measuring stick. Am I loving to people I don't like? Listen, the scripture never commands us to like everyone. A lot of us don't even like all the people who live with us. It commands us to love everyone. So love has to do with this sacrificial others approach. Do I take that approach? Is that the mark of my life? Those are the marks of true Christians. And the more you grow in your relationship with God, the more you're going to see that growing in you. Nobody's perfect. But genuine Christians do bear the mark of Christ. And the mark of Christ has to do with trust, obedience, and love. Have you ever, have you ever seen a, a, like a young mom with a toddler and she picks up the toddler and smells his rear end? Right? Like, who does that, Right? Every mom in the world, right? Why? Because she's trying to figure this out. Do I need to change him or can we get to the next place before we change him, right? That's what she's trying to figure out. Can this baby pass the smell test? The, the, same, thing, the same thing happens when you, you go to the fridge and you want a big cold glass of milk and you see way in the back there's a carton that's been back there for some time and you pull it out and you can't really read the date. Do you just pour yourself a glass and chug that down? No, been there, done that, right? Not going to do that again. So what do you do? You pop it open and put your nose just close enough to where you're going to get a whiff. And if you smell that sour smell, that milk is out of here, right? Does your faith pass the smell test? John's given us the smell test, guys. He's saying, look at yourselves. Ask yourselves these questions. Am I really walking by the Spirit or am I walking according to the flesh? See, if you had asked me when when I didn't know Jesus, if you had asked me if I was a Christian, I would have said yes. Because as a little kid in a Sunday school class, I raised my hand, I prayed a prayer, they told me that that made me a Christian. And I live in America and I'm not a Buddhist and I'm not a Muslim and all of that. Of course I'm a Christian. But the interesting thing is, if you were to look at my life, what you would see is anger, hatred, malice, violence all kinds of stuff as characteristic of my life. But once Jesus got a hold of me, some of you have known me a long time. You know me pretty well. You know me really well. And you know what? Um, I ain't perfect. I'm so far from perfect, no one ever mistakes me for perfect. But I'm not the man I used to be. And that's a mark of Jesus. Jesus. I, I ran into an old friend that I hadn't seen since I, before I knew Jesus just a couple of months ago. And he didn't even know I was a pastor or a Christian. And he, he said, You're a pastor? How did that happen? That's literally what he said. Oh my gosh, thanks for asking, right? He ah! <laughs> like, said, How did that happen? I go, I know, it's it's not what you would expect, right? He said, no. <laughs> see, the mark of a changed person. I, I'm, not, I'm not all who God wants me to be, but I'm on my way. I can see God working. I, I know that I'm becoming. And you see, counterfeit religion, where it's just about signing up and Joining the club and jumping through the religious hoops is exhausting. And it's frustrating. But when you have Jesus, He gives you what's called the abundant life. A surrender to Jesus means the abundant life becomes yours. And what are the marks of the abundant life? Belief, obedience, and love. And that leads to the All the joy and peace that comes with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you this, and we'll close. How abundant is your life these days? Maybe you and God need to have a talk about some things. Maybe there are some corners of your heart that you've been holding him out of. It's time to let go. It's time to bring him back into the center of things. And the second question is this. Who do you know that needs the abundant life that Jesus talks about? Maybe it is that person who lives in your house. Maybe it is the neighbor next door. Maybe it's the lady in the cubicle two over. Who do you know that needs that abundant life? And is it possible that maybe, just maybe, God puts you in their lives so that they would see Jesus when they see you? Let's stand and we'll pray together.